Good morning. And uh, good morning to everyone who's worshiping online as well. Grace and peace is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you that are here, open your folder to page 8 and 9 for this, the, the scripture text that's our meditation and our sermon. We also have slides, but you've probably been with me long enough. You know I'm not really good at preaching with slides. So I've, if I have this out in front of you, you've also got scripture text there for you. You don't have to raise your hand, it's a rhetorical question, but who hasn't, who has not ever thought, God, what are you doing? <coughs> it's like one of those days where things outside of your control, the first thing that happens outside of your control that's negative, you go, okay, there's probably some coincidence or some reasons, there's, God's got a little something going on. Then another thing in a whole different area of your life goes bad that same day. And then you get news from someone or you get a phone call that's very difficult to navigate. You, get, you open up your mail at the end of your work day and the, there's a bill that you didn't anticipate. You don't even think it's fair. Like one of those tollway bills that hit our house. It's like, what? I got a phone call from a collector about a toll bill. What is this? You get days. Sometimes it's a lot bigger. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes it's a season. Sometimes it's a year. And sometimes it's a lifetime. Where you're going, God, what are you doing? What were you doing? What were you doing when you picked those two to be my parents? I know some of you thought that. I, there, there were days I thought that. Uh, we, we have those thoughts. So I wanted to start this way so that we could tap into that angst we have about living in a fallen world. And we all have it. And, and sometimes it piles up on us. It's, it's bigger than just a little bit. I'm always scared, I really am, to speak for God if someone says, what is God doing, Pastor, in my life? I mean, the infinitesimal, the large, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe, and I'm going to boast that I can tell someone, like I'm this prophet on the hill, exactly what God's up to in their life. It's always kind of frightening to think that any of us would dare speak for God. That's why it's, and it should be, it's comforting to have the Bible speak for God and to take these days and these seasons we go through and filter them through the Bible. That's why a rhythm of worship and going to texts like Ruth chapter 1, where we are, are so valuable and important because we can take our, those feelings I'm talking about and we can watch what God was doing in, in Ruth and Naomi's life Naomi is the mother-in-law, Ruth is the daughter-in-law, and we can see some insights about what God does in everyone's life. And that's much more stabilizing and much more liberating than some specific word about what's he doing right now in my own little story. So that gives me joy. I feel confident and not so afraid to proclaim boldly from Ruth what God does in all of our lives. And so let's go there. Let's go to that book. It's got four chapters. We can't preach all four chapters, but the story's short enough. It's only 95 verses that we can summarize it. It's in the period of the days of the judges. It starts that way. I'll, that first verse says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The judges, what is that? It's a whole book in your Bible. It's the season between the conquering of the land by Joshua at the end of Moses and Joshua and the book of Joshua, they conquer the promised land. 
and before they ever got their first king, which was Saul. It's a 400, maybe minus a few hundred years, I mean a few decades, 400 year period. It's dark. If you read the Judges, it will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck if you realize what you're reading. If you saw it on the screen, it would be rated double R for the violence that's there. And the book of Judges is just very dark because there were a lot of enemies. There was a lot of murdering and intrigue and exploitation and rape and all these terrible things happening in God's nation. Enemies coming in and doing it and some of the Israelites doing it themselves. All the while, there's this tabernacle where God is talked about and preached and there's this calling back to God. But it's, it's not pristine at all. It's a big mess. Dark. Right after the book of Judges, this little book of Ruth is this beautiful, bright light in the days of the Judges. The writer's saying, I'm not bothering to tell you when during those 400 years this was, but it was in the days of the Judges, in the dark time. There was a woman and a man, Elimelech and Naomi, and they had a little family of two boys, but there was a famine. Think the drought that we're in that's epic right now in the south, in Texas. It's hotter and drier than it's been in, on record. And think about that times 10 because you could not still go to H-E-B that trucked in all your food. They had to do something. So Naomi and Elimelech took their two boys and they went to Moab, not an Israelite country. On the other side, if you're looking, I should have gotten a map for you. On the other side of the Dead Sea, Moab, the ancient descendants of Lot, they have, over, for, for centuries, they've been worshiping Chemosh, a pagan god that's all about fertility, immorality around his temple, and killing of babies to sacrifice to Chemosh to appease his anger and all kinds of terrible stuff like that. They're Moabites. They're not, they're not all uh, civically bad, but they're, they, got, they got a lot of paganism. But they went there because there was water there which made gardens where they could eat. And there they are. Now things, that's bad already, right? Famine, have to move. Israelites had family lands. So they left behind their legacy, their family land. And legally, it's still kind of theirs, even though somebody probably moved in behind them, even though it was dry and all that, and tried to do something with it. They go over to Moab. When they get to Moab, they lived there 10 years in that time. Let's read it. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His By the way, Elimelech means my God is king. Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Grief on top of grief. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malhan and Kilion also died. You expect to outlive your children, don't you? I mean, you expect them to outlive you, don't you? There she was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, in other words, the rains came, they could plant food. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there, but it's not setting well with Naomi. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would have taken them back to the land of Judah. Jump to verse 19, go to that slide if you will. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Because of them, the women in the town said, can this be Naomi coming back? Remember, Naomi in their ears was what? What did it sound like? The word pleasant. Could this be the woman called pleasant? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very Bitter. The Hebrew word for Mara or Mary means bitter. And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Bitter. Uh, not really. You wouldn't necessarily on this particular day send Naomi on an evangelism call. <laughs> right? We don't really want her representing the smiling Jesus who saved us from our sins on this day. Because this woman is angry with God. She believes in him, and therein lies the source of her pain. It would be easier for her to deny his existence. But she believes the Lord is God, and he's a good God. All capital letters, L-O-R-D. The, the free and faithful grace God who's slow to anger. That's a passage she would have known. Love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Well, it sure looks like she, that God, my God, the real God, has been dumping on me. Dead husband, dead sons, don't call me Naomi. Couldn't you hear Naomi saying, what in the world is God doing the last 10 years? It's not in the slides, so don't try to follow me on this one, guys, in the back. But what if Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, got to scoot into her story? Remember, he's from Genesis, which is hundreds of years earlier. Remember Joseph's story, 20 years in Egypt? His brothers had sold him. And what did Joseph say to his brothers that was reassuring that we've all kind of memorized? Do not be mad at yourselves, he says, because you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. I think Joseph would scoot alongside her and say, Naomi, I have, I have a similar story. God means it for good. But you're in the middle of your story. The neat thing about Ruth is you get to see the end of this, the book of Ruth. You get to see the end of the story. Like you get to see the end of Joseph's story. So by the end of the book, Naomi says that you can call me Naomi now. Because she's got baby Perez. I mean, uh, yeah, Ovid? It's Ovid. Baby Ovid on her, on her knee. Which is Boaz and Ruth's baby. Her life is better now. What is God doing, Naomi, by letting you endure a lot of hardship in this short life of yours? Well, what if the Apostle Paul got to scoot up next to Naomi, who writes all about suffering as a Christian in Romans 8, back up to Romans 5. We also have this on the screen. 
See, I think Naomi would look at her life in, in these troubled days in, when she said Mara, and she would say, if it's like a, 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 a beautiful dessert, that, like a cake that I'm making, if you taste it, she'd say, there's something missing. Right? I mean, I've got all this trouble, but I don't have any sweetness. Paul, in Romans 5, puts in the ingredient that's missing. Because Paul says something that's really kind of hard to wrap your heart around. You can sit in church and smile and say, yeah, we need to do that. But unless you really see the missing ingredient, you cannot do it. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Let's read this. Therefore, I'll read it. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Remember, Naomi was not at peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What is the hope of the glory of God? It's the hope of living inside of his glory where you can see it with your eyes and feel it with your, your senses and have it in your heart in heaven. That's what Paul's talking about. Get that we rejoice in the hope of in heaven there ain't no Moab, there ain't no famine, there ain't no dead husband. Right? Go to the next paragraph. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Wait a minute. Naomi's not glorying in her... I'm going to get louder and louder for that baby. Glory, glory's not... Glory. Naomi's not glorying in her suffering. Do you glory in your suffering? I don't think that baby's glorying in his suffering. Right? That's, that's really an illustration of what it feels like. We've just learned to hold it in our hearts as adults, right? When you're squirming. Babies are just too honest, too transparent, too un, un, unaware of their surroundings. But we are all kind of keep it in. But the truth is, sitting in church, we could be suffering terribly. What I'm trying to do by showing you Naomi is let you walk with her on her journey and learn what God taught her to let God speak for God. Remember I said I was afraid to speak for God when you're suffering? So the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in your sufferings when you know the gospel. Let's let him finish his statement. Because we know that suffering produces something. Oh, what's God doing now by letting me have bad days? Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. Who he has given to us. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that Christians who had to suffer early in their life, let's say a child born into a Christian family gets juvenile diabetes. They have to get a shot every day, maybe several times a day. They have to check their blood sugar. They go through terrible highs and terrible lows. They go through a lot of needles and a lot of doctor's visits and a lot of interference with their diet and their life. Have you ever noticed how often they are much more mature and patient about something that happens outside of the realm of their expectations have you ever noticed how if you're unpracticed at suffering, 
how you can throw such a temper tantrum? How you can be such a Naomi, a Mara, a brat with God? See, what, what Paul is saying is suffering seasons a person. It makes you bear down. It makes you ask the question earlier and more often. It makes you look for the answers, and there's a God who loves, your God loves to answer it. He loves to put in the ingredient of the hope of the gospel. It teaches you to let go of this. You know what I mean by this? Life on earth. See, we tend to think that the best time to let go of life on earth it's right as you realize I've only got about 20 breaths left and we stand around our loved one and we say, you can let go now. We're going to be fine. God's going to take care of us. We're going to love each other. But actually, to let go of, this is what Jesus meant when he said, you, you, uh, whoever loses his life will find it. You actually find freedom earlier if you learn to let go now. But you're not going to do that. You're going to get anxious about your jobs. You're going to get anxious about your new car you want or whether or not so-and-so is going to like you or whether they've already said something bad about you or what was written on Facebook. You're going to get all upset about life because you're a sinner. You're not, you're not going to let go of life unless God makes you. <laughs> What's God doing to Naomi? Making her let go. And it's always hard. And we're not hard on Naomi because Naomi is us. She's a sinner. She wanted life on earth to be good. Who wants life to be bad? But ever since mom and dad, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow, dust you are, dust to dust you shall return. So if I said, well, I've preached long enough, I've got to let you go, but now you're wiser and you know what God is doing, how would that feel? Not, not real good, right? Because it isn't the whole story. The whole story is that missing ingredient through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually, we, you probably, when you hear Naomi go, call me Mara, and you hear me say she's angry with God, you, you kind of like maybe feel bad for her because how dare her talk about God that way, right? But you know you have, and you do, and you think it, and you feel it, so now you say to yourself, how dare me? Some of the most difficult spiritual thoughts I've ever had are the guilt and fear of being mad at God because things weren't going well in my life because I thought now things aren't going well, plus I've got the guilt of having been mad, and I'm mad at God, so I'm made myself his enemy. Well, Jesus releases you from that, too. He died for your sinful attitude and your sinful heart and your weaknesses. He died for it all. So you, you can find your freedom in Christ from the guilt and shame and fear over your being angry with God over this life that you won't let go of because you have a Savior. That's the hope, the character, the perseverance. So then you learn, I'm going to go through life with difficulties like Naomi did, but I'm going to go through them with my Jesus right here with me, and I'm going to have hard days, and I'm going to have hard attitudes, 
but he's going to walk with me, forgive me, and cleanse me, and strengthen me, because he's already taken care of it at the cross. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 5. And the more this mixes together, the more the ingredients gets mixed together. And if it gets mixed together like your, your spaghetti sauce, and you put it in the fridge, it seasons even more while it sits there until the next week of bad things happen. <laughs> and then it, you pull it out and you've got, he says, you've got character and hope because you're seasoned, you're a veteran, it's suffering, and you've learned to rejoice in it. So Paul could write to the Corinthians later, I rejoice in insults, I rejoice in sufferings, I rejoice in thorns in the flesh, I rejoice in people uh, abandoning me because I learned that when I'm weak, then I'm strong in God's love and grace and hope and promises. And Naomi's learning that. So what's God doing? He's, he's wrenching free your grip on earthly life so that you will live for him an eternal life. Because you're not here. You can't push the pause button during good times and say my life's going to be good all the time. And you can't get out of the fact that you're going to have a hard life and then you die. That's, that's what it's like here. We have a Savior. Back to the story. And then there's Ruth. What a beautiful daughter-in-law. Real quickly, how many of you have daughters-in-law? Son-in-law? Okay. This is, the, you guys with little kids, it's one of the most challenging thoughts is to think, who are they going to marry and bring into this family? What are they going to be like? You wives, will they turn my son away from me out of their anxieties? I don't know. Ruth was a fantastic daughter-in-law. You know what made her the biggest blessing for Naomi? She listened to Naomi when Naomi told her about the Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah God. Ruth was a Moabite. She grew up in a family most likely that worshipped chemos or nothing at all. Naomi taught her about the Lord. And when I, I'm about to read to you the way Ruth talks to Naomi about not leaving her, listen to all the words of faith. This is a girl who got brought into the faith of the Israelites by this woman Naomi and her, and her boys and her husband as long as he was there. And Ruth, Ruth accepted it all in faith. Remember when somebody asked Jesus, what's the good work to do to have eternal life? He said, listen to the word of God and believe in me. Just believe in me. Well, Ruth believed in the God of Naomi. And it changed Ruth's life. And that changed Naomi's story. So let's read it. This is the second thing God's doing in hard times. Verse 8. Naomi said to her new daughter-in-laws on the road, leaving Moab, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She's thinking pragmatically, You girls, you're not going to get a husband from me. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Even Orpah was thinking that too. Naomi, though, is determined. She's really trying to convince them the best route for them is to go back so they can marry. It's the only occupation a woman could have in those ancient days was to be a wife and a, and a mother. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't really a way for them to make it for themselves out there 
except to do something of ill repute. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. There's that whole bitterness, right? At this, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is your example. She's going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. She's talking about even if, since you go back there and you can't farm it by yourself, you'll have to be kind of a nomad. I'll be a nomad with you. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Um, later on, Boaz says to, ne to Ruth, you left your mother and father. So she had a family intact back home. So your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. This is a woman using ancient language to say, it has already been decided by faith in my heart that I am all in in being your daughter. I am not turning back. It's not even an option. You know when you're trying to talk to somebody about go do this, and they say, no, I want to do this. You're, you're both trying to see if it, which one is really totally committed to what they want to do because you're both trying to be nice to each other. Ruth's saying, it's not an option. Don't even go there. We're not arguing about it. When she says, I will be buried where you're buried, she's saying something that ancients said that you're not used to. You don't even know if you're going to be cremated or not. Some of you yet. You don't even think about that. But they, remember, remember Joseph? He said, when, we, when God's going to deliver you from Egypt, when the, he does, hundreds of years after me, what did he say? Don't leave my bones in Egypt. Take, pick them up and take them to the land of my fathers. I'm still a sojourner here. I, I may have been your brother who got to live as an Egyptian aristocrat for several decades, but I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. Bury my bones where the promised land is. Well, what's Ruth saying? Bury, I'll be buried in the promised land of Israel because I am an Israelite by faith. She's, this is huge. I'm going to be with you now until death do us part. This, is, there any, is there any surprise that this is used as a wedding text? Even though it's a daughter-in-law with a mother-in-law? Because that's what you're saying when you get married. May the Lord, this is an oath, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now the rest of the story is in those 95 verses. Ruth goes and, and they don't have any food, so she's more able-bodied than Naomi, so the next day she goes and does what poor people did. You went behind the harvesters, it was the barley harvest, and you gleaned the seeds off the ground. Sometimes you could pick up a, a stalk that was half beaten, you know, but a lot of times you had to go behind your hands and knees and pick up the little seeds out of the ground and put them in your, 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 the top of your skirt, you know, or your bag that you had. It was not pleasant work. She went and gleaned behind them. And then you had all these men. You ever, women, you worked around men out in the field and cat calls and all their other things that they do. 
She's having to put up with all of that, and she's here to do this for her and her mother-in-law in the hot sun to take care of her. And, 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 and it, it's not a coincidence, but it's first shown like it is She's in the field of a near kinsman redeemer, an older man named Boaz, and he shows up and he says, who's this woman back here? Catches her eye and they tell, her, tell him all about her virtue and her faith and that she's a Moabite, but she's made herself an Israelite and she loves Naomi and she's taking care of her mother-in-law and she's all Naomi has left. She lost her husband, she lost her sons. Naomi is like this vulnerable woman that she's gonna have to put the family land up for sale. Boaz knows that. And a near kinsman redeemer can buy it, but he could be a rascal and end up trying to like most for most of their lifetimes to exploit it and get it away from her. And so he, oh, she's, she is the bright light. That woman, Ruth, she's the bright light in Naomi's life. Now, some people pass by bright lights without ever even noticing them because they themselves are selfish, Right? But Boaz has all the same character traits that Ruth does. Benevolent, faith-filled, trusting God even in difficult circumstances, and committed to doing something positive even though something bad is happening. Instead of caving in and getting all selfish and, and self-pitied, Boaz was a guy who kept making his environment around him, his situation a blessing because his character, his godly character was there to be generous. But the difference between Boaz and Ruth is he's an older man with lots of wealth. And she's a younger, poor woman. But he has the same virtues as he's not gonna exploit her vulnerability. And he notices her. And then the story develops. In just two chapters, Boaz is thinking there's just no way. I'd love to have a wife like that like that daughter is a daughter-in-law, but there's just no way that young woman is gonna be around an old rascal like me as a husband. And then it develops to where Ruth and Naomi talk and then Ruth goes and she, she very, um, in a very humble way says, will you be my near kinsman redeemer for my mother-in-law and me? And I'm asking you, if you would take me under your wings, I will be your wife. At the threshing floor, chapter three, go read it. and. And in a very respectful way, he says, yes, but I got to go to the city gate tomorrow and make it happen. And he does. And he takes Ruth as his wife. And we get to chapter four. And they have a baby named Obed, which means servant. Sounds like mom and dad, right? And now Naomi gets to take care of grandson Obed as the restoration of her family. So she's kind of like the grandma that's the surrogate mother legally because now this is the heir that's going to protect their family name, their family, their lands, and their legacy. It's all about restoring life on earth as they expected it to be, even though it's not near what they expected it to be. And so God kind of sews it up and puts a bow on it and gives them Obed, and things seem right in the world to Naomi. So she's willing to say, call me Naomi again. And everybody's happy. And they say to her, the girls of the, of the city say to her, Ruth is better for you as a daughter-in-law than having seven sons. And that story verbally, orally, had become so popular that by the time of David, because this is David's family tree, Ruth and Boaz are in the family tree, 
somebody sat down to write it and they wrote 95 verses to tell the story that had been being told orally and they made sure it was written and God made sure it was preserved and put in your Bible so 2,000 years later you could learn from it because you might have had a bad week and you might be asking what is God doing okay first wrenching you free from this life second He's giving you an opportunity to be a bright light. So go to that match, that picture of a match. Have you ever lit a candle or a match in a very dark room? Yes, you probably have. You remember how small that is, right, in that dark room? And yet it actually lights up the whole room. It's just that big. Ruth, the book, 95 verses, lights up the entire period of the Judges. You would be, you would, you'll remember Ruth's story more than you'll remember uh, some of the stories in, in the book of Judges. The bad stories. Because Ruth is a bright light. And she's still, she's been shining light on, on God's love and God's faithfulness and God's way of making a person generous like her. He, he, she's been shining it for thousands of years. She didn't write her story. Somebody else did. She just lived it. Do you see where I'm headed with that? She's a, a light in a dark place. She didn't, write, li, she didn't light up saying, someday somebody will write my story. That's exploiting your life. That's thinking you have to get attention for what you do. That's really not serving at all. She was serving because she was a servant. She, had, she knew God's grace and she believed in the God of Israel that was a good God instead of Chemosh, that demonic God. And she loved God and she trusted him even in the hard times and she said I'm going to serve those you told me to serve my family my friends it was a lie so what's God doing when you have a bad week he's giving you an opportunity to be a light in a dark place are you living in a dark place do you work in a dark place is your family dark is your spouse dark it, do you have a dark church then be a light. Don't be defined by the darkness. Light a match. Serve with love. Stand up. Stand, stand out and be a Ruth. Because you have a gracious God who's always intending it for good, right? Because of the gospel. Be a light. Go to that next slide. If Paul scooted in here, this is what he would say to the Philippians. He said, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you become a blameless and pure child of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will what? Shine like the stars in the sky. It's all over the Bible. What's he doing when he lets you have a hard week? He's letting you have an opportunity to shine. And the darkness is necessary for people to come to your light, which will be God's love in your life. Go to the next slide. I want to come back to verse 19 at the end of this reading and just read this to you. So the women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? What town did they go to? One of the earliest mentions of Bethlehem in the Bible is in the book of Ruth. Bethlehem. The, the book of Ruth ends with a very short genealogy. It has ten names in it. And the last name, the last word of the entire little book is David. It was probably written after the period of the judges. Who was the first king? 
it happened, the, the story happened during the period of the judges, but the story was written after. First king was Saul, who was the second king. How long did it take David from the day he, uh, Saul died to be king, declared king in Israel by all Israelites? Seven years. It wasn't just seven days until they had a coronation on January 20th or something. It was seven years. Perhaps the author, inspired by God, was helping legitimize properly David as king of Israel, showing his, his beautiful family tree and how David was from Bethlehem, right? Later, later than David, Micah would write, You Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come one who is ruler from of old. Where's David from? He's from Bethlehem, but he's ruler of Israel. He's not ruler from generations from of old. He's just a, a man, right? But, but Micah would use this to talk about the Christ who's coming. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come one who is ruler from generations, and he will be the king of the universe and bring peace, prosperity, life like Naomi had after Obed was born, but better. It's a messianic prophecy. And what did they call the Messiah who was to come? And they gave that name to Jesus over and over. Son of David. So while the writer inspired says, here's, here's Bethlehem. Here's the family tree of David. Here's where he came from. Here's a beautiful story that romanticizes and legitimizes David as king of Israel. That's too small of a thing for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had it as part of the grand upper story to show you and me as we read our Bibles like we're supposed to. Remember I said I'm afraid to speak for God. But if God speaks in his Bible, I'm confident to do that. The upper story that's displayed in the Bible is to strengthen faith in the gospel. The gospel where Jesus was prophesied to be born from Bethlehem grows out of the story of David. And this being the son of David who's from Bethlehem. And here's the early stories about how David's family tree worked out in Bethlehem and these are real people that had real problems and had a real relationship with God and real solutions and it's all part of a real geography, real family tree, real prophecy, real God, not fake, not contrived, not invented by wishful people so that your faith will be strong in your darkest day in the big story that it's not about you It's about Jesus. And if it's about Jesus, then there's a place for you in his grace. If it's just about you, good and bad things happening according to your expectations every day, you're going to end up being the God of your own making and take yourself to hell. But if you go step back and let go of life and say, you know, I'm part of a grander story and it's about Jesus, you get to fit in the bus with him and go to heaven by his saving grace. So the story ends by, by the lens, the lens widens out and you see it's really part of the Christ story, which is what you want in your darkest days. It's the most stable thing. I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the long promised savior. I'm secure in that belief. I have no idea why God's not meeting my expectations today, but I do know he's wrenching me free of my grip on this life. He's helping me be a bright light and he's got my salvation in his hand. I'm going to be okay. 
I'm going to be okay. You see how complete that is? I hope, my prayer for you as a pastor, is that you would take these insights and the Holy Spirit would take it. And this week, when you start to forget and you start to get all upset and you're starting to fall off the wagon, that he reminds you what you heard. And if you need a little help, just go back and read Ruth again. Amen.